Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP Health Sports Radio. My name's name's Peter Solomon, and my tongue's not working quite right, so forgive me. And it's time for more conversation on this WIP Sunday. Always hot conversation, and we're going to continue it this morning as we talk more about the recent tragedy in Parkland, Florida. What causes someone to pick up a gun and go berserk? All this and more when we come back here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back. My name's Peter Solomon. It's WIP Sunday, 94 WIP. And my guest this morning, Dr. John Huber, mental health, mental health specialist extraordinaire. Good morning, Dr. Huber. <laughs> Good morning, Peter, and congratulations on an amazing Super Bowl. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, sir. All right. From something wonderful to something horrible, the recent shootings yes. in Parkland. What are your initial thoughts? Well, you know, my initial thoughts are, you know, the, for the, the the families of, of the children and and teachers who are lost. I mean, you know, that that's always a concern and and something that you know, there, there's very little we can do as a society other than than you know tell them we're sorry, but uh, we need to do something else. I mean, there's a lot of other issues. I've been asked several times, why didn't the school districts do different things, and why didn't they do X, Y, and Z, and it would have been easy. You know, he was visited by the the police over 30 times in the previous six years. Why didn't they do something? And the problem is we're talking about, for most of that time frame, a minor, so there's special laws about protecting minors, information about minors, what what gets out, and then we go to, well, why didn't a psychologist talk to him? Why don't the schools have psychologists? Well, schools do have psychologists. They're called school psychologists, but what you're asking them to do is something that very few psychologists are actually trained to do, and that's violence and risk assessment, and in most states, for example, like Texas, where I'm at, there are special levels of training that are involved in calling yourself a forensic psychologist, and there are very few psychologists who go through that type of training and skill set to learn that very specialized part of psychology where you look at, can I predict whether this person is going to act in a violent way or not? Can any psychologist, though, talk to someone and get a sense of, uh-oh? Well, you can always get a sense, and, and it's real easy to be that armchair quarterback and turn around and say, I knew this kid was going to do that. Um, you know, and a lot of people are going to say that. But uh, let, let's go back to what the school districts did. You know, the school districts actually did what, Legally, by law, they're mandated to be able to do. They didn't violate the kids' rights. They didn't, uh, you know, do anything unusual. And they followed through with a process that takes sometimes years to do. And they expelled the student, which ultimately is about the biggest amount of control that a school district can have over any individual student or send them to an alternative school at the very least. And that process was done. Unfortunately, uh, when everybody says, well, we reported this to the 
to the FBI that he was posting these things on Facebook and social media, and we reported it to our police. Unfortunately, you know, there's not a mechanism in place. In fact, this past week I've, I visited with several judges and here in Texas because I'm like, there's got to be something. Why haven't we done this before? Why don't we have a mechanism? And what we've come up with is we need to go to our legislators here in Texas and request that they make some changes. And one of them is they write a bill that allows judges to do what what we're calling right now, my nonprofit, Mainstream Mental Health, we're calling a mental health subpoena or warrant. And that would give a police officer, when somebody calls and says, hey, I'm concerned for this individual, they've made threats on social media. So the police officer sees the social media, goes in, talks with the young man. After reaching a certain threshold, that police officer then can go back to a judge and say, look what he's done on social media. I met with the person. They seemed like someone who is on edge, whatever, can can we get a warrant to go and search the premises to see if this individual has the potential to follow through with these threats? Once that officer collects data then, that officer can go back to the judge and say, okay, here's the evidence we have. We think this guy can do this. The judge can then order this person to go and see someone like me, a forensic psychologist, to do that risk assessment. And once that risk assessment has been done, the judge can look at it and determine whether there needs to be some sort of civil commitment or something like that in order to ensure the safety of not only society, but that individual. There's nothing like that right now. You're talking about what sounds like a very lengthy process. It is, but think about this. I mean, you know, 30 some odd visits in six years by the police, uh, you know, it's a process, but it also ensures we're protecting that individual's civil rights. And it's nothing like what I've been hearing calls for blanket assessing psychological risk assessment evaluations of of every child when they hit sixth grade or eighth grade or ninth grade. I mean, I've heard all these different things that have been thrown out. Why don't we do this? Well, forget the cost. I mean, just doing that many kids on a psychological evaluation, I mean, the average evaluation in my office costs about $3,000 because it entails a lot of material and time, and we're not going to be able to do that with these kids. So what is the next best step? Well, if anywhere along that line this kid had had the ability to have the courts to step in and do something like this, it's not a criminal proceeding. It wouldn't be a criminal record on this kid's behalf, and if nothing showed up, you know, the, as it turns out, that his testing shows that this individual was not likely to do anything. You know, the, the courts would you know note that and move on. Uh, it's pretty scary to think that we're even having these kind of conversations at, at this day and age. I mean, uh, 30 years ago, you go here in Texas, you go to any high school parking lot, and every other truck's going to have guns in the back, and the kids would have been hunting that morning. And they weren't shooting schools up. So, you know, what, what, what's happened? And uh, that's probably the bigger social question that we have to answer. Well, 30 years ago in Texas, they had guns in the back. But what's happened because there's been shootings in Texas? 
Well, there have been shootings, but they banned guns from schools. And as a forensic psychologist, one of the things we look at is the, the mindset of a criminal. And a criminal is an individual who wants to take advantage of situations. So they look for what we call soft targets, targets that aren't going to fight back. In fact, uh, you know, when you go into populated, crowded areas, you know, one of the things we know, people who act like they're shy and reserved and afraid actually are the people who end up being targets, not the people who act, you know, like they're in control of their environment and making good eye contact and focusing on people and saying hello and doing things like that. And uh, unfortunately today, with the advent of all this uh, social media and smartphones and tablets, people aren't learning how to interact socially. So I think we may be seeing uh, a shift again where, hey, there's a lot of easy targets because people don't know how to act in groups. So, I mean, again, this is a bigger social problem that I think is, is facing America today. When we look at history, though, um, Doctor, there's been a pendulum swing. 30 years ago, take the timeline you just suggested, it was fairly easy to put someone into a mental health facility. A couple of signatures and it was bye-bye. Now it's incredibly hard. Have we gone too far the other way to protect civil rights? Well, that that may be something that we have to address. I know, you know, we, we changed some of our confidentiality rules around 2005 with HIPAA laws. And whenever somebody walks into my office, whether they're getting therapy or whether I'm doing a psychological evaluation, every piece of my my documentation, my notes, the testing itself, it's all bound by HIPAA law. And unless there's a significant threat, and also the key phrase when I go to a judge is it's an immediate threat. And what that means is varies based on judge. One of them is, well, is this person going to try and kill somebody in the next 24 hours? That's immediate in that judge's mind. Uh, and other judges, like, well, you think in the next two weeks they're going to do something. That's immediate. And other judges, you know, there's no set definition of what immediate threat means. So it's hard enough to predict what somebody's going to do in the future, let alone now I've got to give a time limit on it. So there have been some some new hurdles that have to be overcome. Is that a problem? It's part of that bigger social issue we have. Well, part of the problem, too, I think, though, on the other side, was so many of our mental health facilities were medicate them and leave them to do whatever, and therefore a lot of abuses occurred. That is that is very true. And, you know, we're kind of an instantaneous society. We want to give a pill. We don't necessarily want to have to do the work to ensure that that pill's enough and or to give the person specific skills and coping mechanisms to avoid losing control like this. And the pill seems to be, or a pill seems to be the, the easiest mode. Let's just sedate this individual or otherwise make them calm and not necessarily, again, help them learn how to deal with certain stressors. I mean, this kid's life was not very pleasant. Uh, you know, he, he had two adoptive parents who both of them died. And when his mother died most recently, that's when he seemed to kind of take a step over the edge. We've heard other things about him 
having possibly been uh, an adopted child who had fetal alcohol syndrome at some point, looking at facial features. There are some slight differences in the facial features, but the you know the the, the classic physical signs of fetal alcohol fetal alcohol syndrome are not evident in the pictures I've seen. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have it. It just means he doesn't have the classic outward signs. Um, there, there's a lot to that because all of a sudden we know brain development was different in utero, and there may not be the physical mechanism in his brain to control some of these violent acts. So, again, it's a bigger global system and social issue and it needs to be addressed, probably it's going to have to be one step at a time because we've moved so far from 30 years ago, which one of the steps we took has caused this to open up and become a major problem for us. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My guest this morning, Dr. John Huber, forensic psychologist, author, expert. We're talking about the shootings in Parkland, Florida, and what we can do about them. We'll be back in just a bit, Doctor. You stay with me. Got to run a few commercials. The WIP time, 7.15. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name is Peter Solomon, 94 WIP. My guest this morning, Dr. John Huber, mental health specialist. And we're talking about the recent tragic shootings in that high school in Parkland, Florida. Doctor, um... Just from what little nose coverage we have about the gentleman who did it, Mr. Cruz, it sounds like he's probably schizophrenic, talking about the voices in his head. That's biological, isn't it? it you know, it, it is quite a lot, but still there's a lot of information we're not getting because so much of this stuff documented happened when he was a minor, and, you know, there's... There's special laws in this country protecting that kind of information. You know, they talked about him at 18, almost a year before, purchasing these rifles. And uh, how come, you know, this stuff didn't pop up? Well, he was a minor, and it, it's not included in your adult record. And uh, that is something maybe we need to address as a country. Mm. But if it's biological, on one level... No one forced him to walk into that high school and start shooting. But on another level, if the voices said, go do it, was it really under his control? Well, you know, again, we don't know fully what what his true psychological issues were. And fetal alcohol syndrome, if that's really what he he had physically, it's not typical for individuals to have, you know, that psychosis where you have voices telling you to do things. Uh, you know, I'm sitting here, you know, I I work in courtrooms and I work with both prosecution and defense. And if I'm his a- attorney, I'm probably setting things up to move towards that insanity defense where, you know, yeah, he knew things were were illegal and wrong to do to kill people, but there was some mechanism in place that was telling him, in this instance, he needed to do this or else. You know, like we can talk about... Uh, the mother in Houston several years ago who strangled and drowned her children. And, you know, it turned out that she had a long history of mental health 
psychosis, uh, schizophrenia. She'd been hospitalized sometimes up to a year at a time. And she had these children, and she believed that they were all fathered by the devil, and one of them was the Antichrist, but she couldn't figure out which one it was. So to save humanity, she had to kill her own kids, knowing that killing people is wrong. Uh, we don't know enough information about what Mr. Cruz was going through and what his situation is for for us to make a decision on that, partially because he is a minor and partially because at this point, you know, his attorneys are getting there. His defense attorneys are trying to set up his defense. And so we're not going to get a lot of information made available immediately at this time. But let me ask you a question then. If you were king of the world for a minute, okay, and something <laughs> like this happened, what would you think about the notion of, all bets are off. Open up every record, every corner, every file cabinet that had Nicholas Cruz in it. No more confidentiality. Yeah. You know, and, and and there is an argument for that. And um, as you know, as king of the world, I would probably need to decide whether that information needs to be made available to all the investigators, or all the investigators and the whole world. And that's a tough call as well. Yeah, I, and I believe at this point the investigators are getting access to all his previous records. The, the thing is he had to do this act for it to happen. What can we do to make these records available before somebody makes this kind of a decision? Because ultimately, whether he has psychosis or anything else, he chose to move forward with, with this in a violent way. And now society's in shock. Well, but isn't the clinical term irresistible impulse? Irresistible impulse. Oh, man, now you're getting into rules of, res um, of uh, uh, evidence and um, the issues with Dalbert and uh, McNaughton. You know, th those are longstanding issues, and irresistible impulse, we have to prove that in a courtroom. And again, What's going to do that? It's going to have to be the records and the documentation that was done and the assessments that were done. Again, the assessments that were done in a school setting were done by people who don't have the training for violence and risk assessment. They have training for typical behavioral issues in public schools, typical academic issues, and then general psychological states like depression and anxiety and things like that. Again, the risk assessment is very specialized, and nobody, I, I, I don't know this for a fact, but it's probably 100% uh, certain because nobody in that system is trained in that. I actually used to work in Miami-Dade County Public Schools about 30 minutes from this school in South Florida um, and, and worked with school psychologists and, and did things with, you know, like training with, Broward County and Miami-Dade County, and there's no talk about violence and risk assessment. There's no documentation in their training on how to deal with these situations. Maybe that's something we need to change, but, uh, you know, again, do we need to look at, you know, the taboo gun control issue, you know, and where where is this not happening versus where is it happening? And one of the things we can say 
is about 95% of all our mass shootings in the last 30 years have happened in gun-free zones. And we have about 20 states that absolutely have no restrictions on gun ownership as far as 18 and over and 21 and over for pistols, but where you can actually carry those weapons. And what we see is those 20 states have yet to have a mass shooting in them because if you look at the criminal side of things, again, they want a soft target. They're not going to go and attack, you know, a police department or a gun range. They're looking for victims. That's interesting to me because as I think about it, and I may be wrong, almost all the mass shootings have been in small towns, protected communities, no big cities. Very many of them. I mean, you know, with exceptions, there's a few exceptions. Uh, but, again, what do they do in that small town? They hit the soft target. Uh, we used to have a serious problem with terrorist attacks in Israel, especially in the schools. And what did they do? You know, now teachers in Israel carry guns. And uh, what has happened, they've virtually disappeared from the school setting, those types of terrorist attacks. So if we look at other countries and see what they've done when they've had issues like this, uh, maybe we can get some information that way. You know, I, I don't want to be in a position where we have to say teachers have to carry guns, but the world has changed. It's not 1982 anymore. Well, teachers shouldn't have to carry guns, but parents shouldn't have to kiss their children goodbye every morning and not have them come home at night. I agree, and I have a 13- and a 15-year-old, and when this came out, all I wanted to do was, you know, leave the hospital where I was seeing my patients and go drive to my kids' schools to make sure everything's okay. And you, and I can't do that. I, I don't want to instill that sense of fear in my children. But at the same time, I sure want them to be safe. That's, that's 100% true. Amen to that. What do you think about his adopted family, the family that took him in after Mama died, saying they saw no signs whatsoever? You know, that I, I don't see how that could be possible. I mean, you know, what is an 18-year-old, you know, doing with those types of weapons? I, I lived in that area, and I'm an avid hunter and fisher and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it, it's not a usual thing. You know, here in Central Texas, everybody's got hunting rifles and, and AR, you know, which doesn't mean automatic rifle. It means it means Armalite Rifle, which is a, the Armalite Rifle Company who originated that design. Uh, so it, it's pretty, pretty unusual, in my opinion, for an 18-year-old to go out and do that, especially when they don't have a family history of people who go hunting. I mean, I, I teach my kids to hunt and fish, but his parents aren't even around to do that. So. Uh, Man, I, I just, I have a hard time seeing that they saw nothing. I'm going to switch gears. Okay. The teacher who threw himself between the shooter and the kids, the assistant football coach and part-time security guard. A remarkable man who gave his life for those kids. What do you, what, 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 what helps somebody be like that? Well, you know, it, having having worked in education, 
uh, at the you know college level and the public school level, everything from you know pre-K all the way up through through college. You know, you don't get into that profession to become wealthy or famous or rich or anything like that. You're there because you love humanity. You love teaching children and you want to help direct them have a better life. And, you know, he was definitely, you know, a, a brave soul. And it's obvious that he loved doing what he did and he understood how important it is to protect kids and to be there for the children. I, I, nothing but love goes out to that man and his family. And I, I honestly, you know, I've worked in school settings uh, 15, 20 years, and, and I sit there, and there's very few of the teachers and coaches that I know who would run the other way and wouldn't do what that man did. So I think it's, it's a caring, loving profession in general. And uh, I, I think we totally undervalue our teachers in this country. And uh, he, he's proof of that. Yeah. If nothing else, the Parkland shooting says teachers ought to get combat pay. <laughs> well, if they're given combat pay, then I want them to be able to truly defend themselves. And, and uh, <laughs> I want them to be able to do that because, you know, he wished he had something to defend himself with in that moment. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, Obviously, you don't think teachers should have guns, or do you? You know, I, I think if a teacher wants to be able to have training like that, and and with, I, I think we shouldn't just say, you know, open the doors and let any teacher carry a weapon in there they want to. I think there needs to be training for teachers and maybe certifications, much like maybe concealed handgun license there they have out there. But I think if a teacher wants to be able to do that in case this rare event actually happens, which is probably a, a topic we need to talk a little bit about, the statistical rarity of this. Uh, but I think if teachers want to go through uh, a certain level of training, that they should be allowed to. What's your position in terms of metal detectors, backpack searches as a preventative? Okay, my my opinion of that is that I've seen them. I've seen them done randomly. I've seen all these different ways to do them. And the truth is the kids know how to get past all of that. You know, they see there's a random metal detector set up outside their school today and everybody has to go into the front door. Well, they know which windows are open and they go put the gun, out, you know, outside the windowsill. They go through the gun metal detector. They walk around to that classroom, open up the window, and they've got their gun back in the in the school, or in some cases, knives. Um, I think student resource officers on campus are a good idea, but the problem is what we saw in Florida. You know, you have one person who's got an ability to defend and ward off this kind of threat, and we're talking about a, probably an eight- or nine-acre campus. He can't be everywhere. And uh, one person who is because of the nature of his job, probably doing paperwork somewhere, uh, filling out forms on complaints and altercations and the kids had, can't police that kind of an area. So maybe we need to have more school resource officers. You know, with psychologists, federal law mandates that I think it's around 1,600 students. Every 1,600 students, we have to have one school psychologist. 
Well, that school campus had 3,000 students. If we use that same number, there should have been two school resource officers on that campus. That would have reduced the the amount of time that Mr. Cruz had to go and do all the things he did right away. And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, John Huber. John, John, yeah, sorry. Yeah, John Huber. Um, mental health. That is true. I'm a little punchy. I apologize. Mental health expert. And we're talking about the shootings in South Florida. What's to learn? What do we know? What do we need to know? Dr. Huber will be back again in just a few minutes. Got to run some commercials. We'll be right back. The WIP time, 7.35. And we're back into the home stretch with Dr. John Huber. Dr. Huber is mental health expert extraordinaire. And we're talking about the shootings at Parkland High School in South Florida. Dr. Huber, how do you help kids come back from that? I think about these kids, and some of them are going to be traumatized the rest of their life. Some of them are going to be traumatized, and and across the nation that is, you know, a possibility. Post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't mean you were right there at the event. It means that you experienced trauma from that event. And the way social media is, the way the news is, you know, uh, you know, my kids were at school, and my my wife is a teacher, and she was at school when this whole thing come come about. They didn't know anything about it. The schools didn't like start, you know, closing, shutting down the school, and all that kind of stuff. They didn't know anything about it until they got home, and you know, it was kind of a shock for my wife because you know she she sees the finality in death, but I think a lot of our our teenagers and younger people, they, they're not getting the whole idea that death is final. And part of that is, I think, due to things like social media and violent video games where you die and then you reappear and, and are, are materialized in another area and you start all over again when you don't have to see the finality of death in, in real life. It, it, clouds their judgment, and then their brains aren't fully developed until their mid-20s. So their comprehension and how they think and process information is different than adults' brains. So there's a whole lot of impact in there, and our kids can be very frightened about things, but ultimately the most important thing we do with our kids is sit down and talk to them about what's going on, talk to them about facts. I think some of the media jumping out and saying this has happened 18 times already this year, and it turns out it's really only happened, including that school in Florida, three times. All the other shootings that they claim were school shootings were adults who pulled into school parking lots and committed suicide or guns that, that fired in adjacent you know, areas in the town, and the bullet went through a window and was documented that a bullet you know, pierce the school window, and no one was hurt. But this organization claims that they're all school shootings, and my concept of a school shooting is much different than that. So we need to discuss openly the facts. Don't try to interpret anything, because kids' minds, you know, you tell them one piece of information, that may be all they need right then, and they're going to stop asking questions. And then you know, two days later or two months later, they'll do a follow-up question when they process that information. So only give them the information they're asking for. And then your reaction is how they're 
they're going to learn to model that whole situation. You know, Peter, you, you mentioned in the previous section, you know, about you, you probably, I assume you don't want guns in schools. And as a forensic psychologist, a lot of times there's a lot of things I want personally, but my role, my job is to look at the data and the statistics and make a decision rationally based off of that versus my gut feeling, my emotion. And, you know, I don't want guns in schools, but the evidence is suggesting that, you know, from places like Israel and the 20 states that haven't had any kind of school shootings in them because, you know, anybody can carry a gun if you're of legal age in any environment. It, it minimizes soft targets. Soft targets are becoming a fear for me as a professional because that's what I see most of our violence starting to focus on. Do you see any difference? Two kids, one shot and took a bullet somewhere and one just managed to escape unscathed. Are they going to react differently or is their healing going to be different? You know, in some cases, the one who actually experienced the shot, their, their healing may actually be easier because it's kind of like I've done that. I've been there and I understand the finality of life. And, and, the other case, you know, the kids, again, they don't fully comprehend it like that kid who actually went through that uh, that physical pain, not just the emotional pain. And uh, their, their healings can be very different. The processes they got to go through as an individual are almost always different in everybody, even, you know, how we react to the loss, uh, death of a loved one is, is different for each individual person so can this trauma, but the physical act of being, you know, shot and surviving is going to have, I think, uh, a different pathway for that individual to have to heal than someone who, who wasn't. I think you're right. I've been astounded by some of the reactions I've seen from Parkland. Um, the kid who said on the news, we're the kids, you're the adults, do something. I think that was remarkable. And the other kid, I do too. the other child who tweeted to President Trump, you know, President Trump, I don't want your sympathies. And then she proceeded to use a bad word in terms of what right. she thought of him. Um, that's remarkably mature. Or, you know, you know or immature. I mean, you know, which is it? You know, yelling at a an adult to do something when you know, they don't totally understand the system of checks and balances and how laws and bills are created in this country. And the reason why this country has those checks and balances is so that no one person runs roughshod and does whatever they want. We want to ensure that uh, our, our civil rights, our civil liberties are all protected. At the same time, the federal government's mandated to do one thing in the Constitution, and that's to protect us. And, you know, what does that mean to each individual politician and, and each voter is probably different. We, we have 330 million people here, and I bet you every one of them has a slightly different belief on what that means for our government. So someone who sees the reality in their backyard, you know, on their schoolyard, is going to react very emotionally without necessarily thinking about 
the processes that we have in place, we're moving slow on this. And no doubt, the part of it is we're trying to collect all this data and look at it. You know, we could go back and say, okay, you know, you mentioned it earlier, a lot of things have changed in our society. What if President Trump took that tweet and turned around and walked in and said, okay, let's look. Let's make everything the way it was as far as uh, children's rights, education in 1980 because, you know, we didn't have these almost regularly scheduled violent outbursts in public schools. And by the way, you know, they have actually been happening since the 1800s. There was a school uh, around the 1820 that had had almost the same situation as the one-room school house and the school marm uh, suspended a kid, sent him home, and he went home, got his hunting rifle, and came in and killed every kid in the school, plus the teacher. I believe it was in uh, Indiana or Ohio in the 1820s. We didn't have the Internet, and we didn't have television and radio to share that with the world. So it didn't have a major impact on anything. You think the shooting in Parkhead will have a major impact on our society? You know, I, I'm surprised at how little I'm seeing from from my kids' friends, how little reaction I'm getting from them. Uh, I, I want to believe that that when I was in high school or in middle school, I would have had uh, a, 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 at least an emotional response to this. And the, the kids, I'm not seeing that. You know, you know, I asked my son, oh, well, you know, there's nobody like that in my school. Well, I mean, how do you know that? There's 4,000 kids at your school. You know, do you know every single one of them? <laughs> you know? And then then we see these re guttural reactions from these kids who are close, who are making these statements. Do something. Do something. We're the kids. You're the adults. Do something. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think the closer you are to it physically, the the more extreme your responses are going to be, uh, you know. The other side to that, I have I'm blessed with amazing kids. My son's a second degree black belt, and he knows because we do hunt and fish and do target practice and go to the gun range that he can't stop a bullet. But what are we teaching our kids now about this? You run. If you can't run, you hide. If you can't hide, you fight. And that's that's basically what school campuses across the nation are teaching teachers, administrators, and the students in these types of situations. And, you know, maybe my son has a little more uh, maturity when it comes to that kind of stuff because he is exposed to some of that. And uh, he doesn't fear guns. He respects guns because of the training he's had. And I think that also tempers people's reactions and the guttural reactions emotionally. Is it a good idea or a bad idea? They're talking about tearing down the building where the shootings happened. You know, that's, uh, that, <laughs> that is a tough decision to make, and I think the people in that community need to make that decision. In some ways, by leaving that building the way it is, uh, it, it's kind of a monument to, to the people who didn't survive. At the other time, other expression, man, that is an open campus. They have to walk from building to building to building to building. If they want to make sure that that never is a possibility again, tearing it down and building it up again 
is the best way to make sure that that doesn't happen again and, and building a different design model for that school. If we could get one piece of information from Nicholas Cruz, what would you want to get? Oh, wow. Um, if I could get one piece of information from him, wow. I, I'm looking at lots of information I want to see. I want to go back and see his, you know, he was involved with, with you know, school administrators. I want to see the evaluations they did. I want to see uh, the notes from the school counselors. I want to see all of that information. And, you know, that's not one piece, that's not one thing, but to me as a psychologist, that would that would paint a picture that, again, would be easier for me to see because we're looking at it, you know, armchair quarterback on Monday morning. Uh, but I, I would want to see all that so we can be looking for those same outliers that have shown up on his and other kids in the future. Uh, that's that's what I want to gain. I don't necessarily want to know why he thought it was important to do what he did. And, uh, cause at this point he's not going to tell us what's really going on. He's, he's already been, uh, uh surrounded by his defense attorneys and, uh, we're never going to get that straight at this point. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. John Huber for joining us here this morning on 94 WIP. WIP Sunday for giving us some new insights and some new ways of taking a look at the problem of violence in our schools and particularly what happened in Parkland, Florida. Thank you, Dr. Huber. Thank you. My pleasure. And before we go, I want to say happy birthday to the amazing Yoko Ono, John Lennon's widow, celebrating her 85th birthday today, 85 years. That woman keeps going strong. God bless her. Um, she's an amazing woman with some degree of talent, no matter what you think about her. Um, happy birthday, Yoko. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative in the discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sunny's reactions. I know I'll be listening. And finally, thank you to Phil Jackson this morning's producer, and to Ann Tidman Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer. Couldn't do the show without you. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.